1: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. But you thought this was the House of the Dragon podcast, didn't you? No, we're still wrapping up book one, A Game of Thrones. This week, we are talking about the second to the last chapter of the entire book. This is Catlin's final POV chapter in this book. And here to help me with this chapter is medievalist Brian Pavlak. Brian has taught all over the world, Rome, Austria, Germany. Check out his book, Game of Thrones Versus History, Written in Blood. What a great resource if you're interested in the real-life analogs to some of the characters that we meet in Martin's world. Then after Brian, uh, Trip Fuller's back to talk about some recent happenings in the world of fantasy literature. Big week over at Double Dragon. Steve and I complete our journey. We began almost two years ago as Steve does his first watch of the Iron Throne. That's right. The final nosedive into disappointment and regret. Find out why Steve loves this episode. That's right. Do a search for Double Dragon. You'll hear Steve defend the inexplicable desires of his heart. Okay, without further ado, here is Professor Brian Pavlak. Brian, let's go ahead and jump into this chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, This is Kat's final point of view chapter. Is it? She doesn't have a point of view in the next volume? Oh, sorry. Of course she does. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because, you know, it's, it's the second to last chapter in the entire book, so... Right, 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 right. So, uh... Yeah, so we're dealing with Cat's final chapter in this first book, Mm -hmm. and I'll just go ahead and read my synopsis, and then we can kind of jump in. Mm -hmm. All right, so Catelyn crosses the river to boat under the walls of Riverrun. She's greeted by her brother, Edmure. She's taken to her dying father, Lord Hoster Tully, who asks after his children and grandchildren, and is disappointed that Lysa did not come. Cat finds Rob praying with his men in the God's wood. afterward, the lords and warriors meet in the great hall of House Tully and argue over war and peace and kings and rights to rule. Cat pleads for peace to no avail. Then the great John declares himself for Rob Stark, King in the North, and the rest follow. So, Brian Pavlik, uh mm-hmm. what do you want to talk about? Shall we talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I
2: climb the ladder of chaos? <laughs> well, I thought I'd just bring up uh, one, one thing else to study is castles. I just want to make a few comments about the castle. Okay. I, I love it. Yeah, I can never get enough <laughs> castle stuff, so mm-hmm. lay it on me. Well... It's uh, unusual to have a three-walled keep. There are hardly any three-walled keeps that I've been able to find. Um, Yeah, I I noted that. That's a little odd, isn't it? Yeah. You know, most common is um, best design, particularly in in the early castles were just round keeps and and standard was square keeps. And then like Chateau Gaillard had a five pentagram type keep. Um, But uh, Three ones that I think it's its like he tries to describe it as sort of like making a, a point, pointing up river so the rivers sort of flow around it, is, is sort of the impression I get.
1: Oh, that makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, and there's okay. one famous castle, Ludwigsburg, in the middle of the Rhine River. It looks like a little boat sitting there, and it also has, you know, a little sharp prow. but the rest of the structure is pentagonal, and the main keep is, is round in that. Um, so that's what I think he was going for. Um, but well, I just don't see it as as a good design.
1: Yeah, triangular. It's not a great design because no. so much of the
2: room is lost to you to the corners. To right? the corners. That's right. Yeah. And and it doesn't give you. In those corners are so would be so tight in any triangle, at least two of them, um, that you don't have much control of the view of the other walls. And that's mm-hmm. the key problem why they started adding all sorts of turrets and bastions and and other castle parts is so you get observational points around all the walls that you needed to. Mm-hmm. So as people approach. Now, this
1: one happens to have a um a balcony that juts out from one of the walls so that you can see people from far off or something like that.
2: Well, it's, it's, are you referring to the solar they're talking yeah, about where right. father is? Yeah. So again, you also a triangular solar. Uh solars are, are fairly late development and they are have to be either high up or well protected because they are more fragile because you don't want big windows because you do want the view. That's the whole point sure. of a solar is to get get the sun shining in and instead of dark, dingy castles. Sure, sure. Yeah. What I found more interesting is is it also had a, a water wheel attached. That's highly unusual to have a, a, a device that is used to grind grain, a, a mill Yeah. attached as part of a castle. It would often be part of a Walls and fortifications, but castles not so much, particularly not to the keep. Well,
1: and this one's built in the middle of a river. I mean, that, right? That's a little. So it makes sense.
2: Yeah, that's odd, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's great description of the watergate, and of course the most famous watergate is in the Tower of London. Um, and just how you know they pass into the watergate, and two that Caitlin's thinking strategically. I like that nice little detail. She notices the rust and uh-huh. and how well it might hold up to battering ram but you can't really use a battering ram on a boat so i don't know how you'd use a battering ram against well the water you could gates. build a, <laughs> I guess
1: I, I, if you're gonna do like a siege that lasts yeah. a month mm-hmm. you could build i mean the famously you could pound pilings in i yeah, guess yeah. yeah yeah i mean famously the romans built a like a land bridge uh, mm-hmm. to to Masada so i mean oh, yes. that that the took house. years but i like that detail because it really does show Kat as she's strategically minded but she's strategically mm-hmm. minded in in a way that n- not necessarily in sort of battlefield tactics mm-hmm. more like relatives to siege tactics because mm-hmm. that would be the place of a of a highborn lady you yes. know sort of managing the the castle right um, well you know while the siege is going on mm-hmm. um, yeah so that, that that was a nice little detail for sure um, let me read this passage I thought this was mm-hmm. an interesting little note here you cannot mean to hold the Joffrey, free my lord Galbert Glover said he put your father to death mm-hmm. that makes him evil Rob replied I do not know that that makes Renly king. Joffrey is still Robert's eldest true-born son, so the throne is rightfully his by all the laws of the realm. Were he to die, and I mean to see that he does, he was a younger brother. Tommen is next in line after Joffrey. Tommen is no less a Lannister, Sir Mark Piper snapped. Mm -hmm. As you say, said Rob, troubled. Yet neither one is a king still. How could it be Lord Renly? He's Robert's younger brother. Bran can't be Lord of Winterfell before me, and Renly can't be king before Stannis. All right, so here we have Rob, and Rob is basically parroting the strict laws of succession, right? Yes. And I think he's smart to call out this notion, like, look, the same thing that's kind of giving me Power in Winterfell, uh, and not necessarily Bran, who, you know, let's say my younger brother decides he wants he wants to be lord of Winterfell. Um, the same thing that's giving me power in Winterfell is giving the son of Robert Baratheon power in King's Landing. And these laws have to be rigid because if we sort of let them crumble then folks like me will lose their power, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then two pages later, they all declare him king of the north. <laughs> king, <Yes. laughs> king of the north, right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, how should we be thinking about laws of, of succession here? Um Is it about the narrative relative to, you know, birth order, or is it really about who's got the bigger army?
2: Well, that is the challenge of living in a civilized society. Civilization provides laws, and the laws often support those in power over those who pay for all those who are in power, the peasants. And those in power, too, often want things to go smoothly, and the peasants often just want to be left alone <laughs> sure. and live lives in decent <laughs> comfort and not uh-huh. be burned and destroyed and killed and murdered, which is going on here. You know, it just describes something right. again had just been ravaging the, the Riverlands. Yes. So, um, laws, you know, cut both ways and ultimately I'm being a pessimist here. It does come down to power, but it's not always the power of the sword. I always keep coming back to mm-hmm. the, the riddle of the swordsman, right? You, you remember?
1: Yeah, remind us, but because I think it's, it's really important. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, because you have a swordsman standing there, and a king says to him, obey me, and I'll give you power. And a cleric is standing there, and he says, obey me, and I'll give you salvation. And the, the merchant is standing there, obey me. And I'll give you wealth. Uh-huh. And the riddle is, whom does the swordsman obey? Right. And it's a rhetorical question because the swordsman has the choice. Right. And any individual swordsman, like I said, you know, obey the pope, or you going to obey the king? Are you going to try to dodge all of it and live your own life? People are always making those kind of decisions. So people have choices, do have choices. Yeah, yeah. And the choices are then enforced, though, often by power. And power is a combination, and I love those those three, a combination of, of wealth and force and mm-hmm. belief. Mm-hmm. You believe something is right. You're going to do it. You can't do it unless you can afford to do it. And if you're going to afford to do it, it's often going to have to be violent. Right. That's the way the world works. Yeah, yeah especially the Game of Thrones world, which is a softer version of our world. Now, today we like to talk about the rule of law. Well, just look at current events. I mean, oh my gosh, look at what's going on in Sri Lanka. A family took over the government. That's often what's missing from these news reports in Sri Lanka, that a family took over the government. They appointed themselves to almost all the important political offices, changed the laws so that they could, changed the laws and all these benefits went to them, and screwed it up royal and uh-huh. everybody's suffering and the people then decide to take power and they they manage to frighten the royals or in this case presidents uh-huh. but the, the place is still chaos and and the brother-in-law of the previous president who's been appointed in charge by his brother-in-law is telling the army to do whatever they can to crush all this uprising yeah i mean this is a game of thrones situation absolutely or it's a medieval, a medieval rebellion situation absolutely and again what Will succeed is who has the will to stick it out, mm-hmm. and the power to keep fighting, and the luck of the battle. And you can say the same that's going <laughs> yeah. on in Ukraine, and the same that's going on with our own politics on a, on a milder, perhaps less violent level. Right, but this is how the world works.
1: Well, okay. So I think how would you how would you respond to this? All right, I'll make a statement. So it is power rules and then the question is what happens to be more powerful the narrative or the will to the throne and i think in this case the narrative for renly is quite weak right i think that, that i think that rob calls that out the narrative renly you can't tell the story that gives him a right
2: to the throne Well, it's only because Rob is attending to the strict letter of the law. But, okay, go ahead. I'll let you finish. Uh, Go ahead. But what do laws really mean by those who can change them at will? (laughs) This is the idea that law, the best law, a medieval attitude is the best law is old law. Oh, okay. Uh, Nowadays, it's the best law is new law. But back then, the best law was old law, so people would try to find old laws, and they often, of course, forged documents Uh to create laws. Now, let, let me also just back it to the larger issue. Who decides who becomes king? In Game of Thrones, oh, look, we have a bunch of laws. But really, who united the seven kingdoms?
1: Someone who uh, upset the apple cart and conquered all of them, right? So Aegon using
2: the using the secret weapon of dragons.
1: Yeah, you, yeah, using magic
2: basically. Uh, if, if he hadn't uh, magical creature, so uh, yeah. if he hadn't had this magical creature, a dragon, he would have gotten maybe nowhere. Maybe yeah. would have won. We don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah, he's not even making magic. marriage alliances because he's marrying his own
2: sisters. So. And, and spoiler, of course, to the next volume, how does Renly lose? magic again yeah yeah it's not a fair fight you know <laughs> stannis uses magic against right. him surprises yeah. him with magic yeah and how does stannis lose well that's mostly his choices because his magic fails him uh he doesn't have good enough magic and good enough decisions and good enough character yeah the magic is luck.
1: fickle right
2: so the magic is fickle but also depending on on some poor choices he makes and his own personality like you said renley's case is weak renley's a charmer he That's is his okay so so yeah so he could he could be successful he he might have been now, successful rob, at the beginning is, is complete unknown nobody knows rob stark and that the scene happens in this chapter where his barons is bannermen in the new terminology of the game of thrones is mm-hmm. bannermen shout him out to be king they do that because they come to know him in a few weeks of battle okay and they've seen him tested in battle tested his leadership and they approve
1: of what they've seen okay i'm gonna i yeah i'm gonna nuance this a little bit okay so i'm really happy that you mentioned the medieval view of law the best law is the old law right Mm -hmm. okay i think that this is a very interesting play by great john umber so what what does he say he says Look, I don't care about any of these southern people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? I don't right. care. B- basically, what we did was we married the dragons. Mm-hmm. Now, who undermined the dragons and unseated the dragons? Well, it was Ned Stark and company, right? So it was it was a Northman and uh, a Baratheon, and a few others, and they basically unseated the last dragon. Mm-hmm. So they undermine that little bit of narrative, and it started to crumble. Yes, and then thirty years later, you can say, "Well, you know, you know, we had we married the dragons. We never married these Baratheons, who mm-hmm. used to be our allies." And so let's let's choose a different narrative that allows me to put this boy on the throne, Rob Rob Stark, and the the better narrative is the older narrative. It's the it's the the king the kings of winter. Let's return to that mm-hmm. rule of law. And so, what ends up happening? Now, I was going to say before this conversation, I was going to say you're just picking which narrative you like. You know, if if mm-hmm. if you thought the best person to be king was the Targaryen, you'd appeal to Aegon. If you thought sure. the best king would be the next Baratheon brother, you'd appeal to Robert. You know, Robert's overthrow. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It just so happens that you believe that the next king, the next person who should be king is the Stark and so you've taken this separatist or secessionist narrative which and I'm glad that you said this which we now know is the older and if mm-hmm. and if the older is is better you can kind of see why this narrative has the strongest sway right
2: Right and that, that's exactly what's going on. It, it, is people are always, are always choosing their narratives. You know, like coming back to that Pope King question. Mm-hmm. You know, you gonna you decide with the Pope because he's in charge of eternal salvation, holds the keys of the kingdom. You decide with the King because well, he's in charge of this world and he affects your taxes <laughs> and your safety sure. and all that yeah. stuff. Uh, or again, or the personality. This King is a is a crap. I'm not going to follow him. Or this Pope is a jerk. Mm-hmm. I'm going to. Do something else. People are always choosing their narratives, and and that is this root narrative underlying Game of Of course, there used to be seven kingdoms. Now, before that, there were the previous people that got invaded and killed off. So let's not even talk about them. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, when yeah. the men came, the men came from the east. They they created these seven kingdoms, which the kingdom of the north is always the sort of rebellious and independent. But again, they were forced by the dragons to do it. But Of course, there are no more dragons until, of course, the next chapter. We get our dragons again. (laughs) So spoiler alert next week, Uh we get the dragons. (laughs) This king of the north thing and secessionist—you know—that's that, a common problem throughout history. Um, let me draw a historical, some historical comparison going on here. Okay. So, when the Carolingian Empire fell, Charles the Great creates this big empire, uh-huh. and it fell because it's attacked by Vikings, and Saracens, and Magyars, or Hungarians. And they, they go rampaging throughout Europe and political powers unable to hold together and things fall apart. And instead of one empire, we lined up with the kingdom of the East Franks and the kingdom of the West Franks mm-hmm. and this Lotharingian territory in the middle that Germany and France fight over for the next thousand years. That's the it. history of Europe germany and france fighting over the leftover middle kingdom of charlemagne for a thousand years Mm. until after world war ii they finally decided to make nice and create the european union but again how do you decide to create any sort of government and that people were faced back then was how do we how do we create stability and that's why we have the rise of castles and knights knights in their castles created the defensive capability and the offensive capability to fight off the Vikings, the Saracens, and the Magyars, hmm. And the kings had sort of fallen in by the wayside because they were not able to organize on a national level because things were too chaotic. And some kings were just jerks and lazy. know, I love the name like Charles the Fat or Charles the Bald <laughs> or you know, all these kings. But they're not able to, to do anything much. Mm-hmm. And then just to focus on the East Franks, my specialty, the, what becomes the Holy Roman Empire the Charlemagne's line dies out. So we have a line, end of a royal dynasty, and who becomes in charge, and they start to fight over it and different families, like in Game of Thrones, start fighting over who's going to be in charge. And they also try to say, well, who's going to be the next king? Are we going to base it on dynasty? Or through family connections and primogeniture, the most popular form, with the eldest-born son, and then ticking down afterwards through through brothers and then or sons or whatever. Or are we going to create an elected kingship, which eventually happens in the Holy Roman Empire? So they begin electing their kings, Mm -hmm. but it goes back to old law. The old barbarians, Germans, elected their kings. Old law is good. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is uh, one family takes over, and they don't like that, so. The king Conrad decides when he dies not to give the kingdom to his son, but convinces his son to hand it over to his worst enemy, Henry. Hmm. And the son goes along with it, the barons go along with it, and Henry becomes king. Now Henry also has to bash a few heads <laughs> to make sure everybody obeys him. But then it's his turn to get close to dying, and he says, Well, I'm going to turn it over to my son. I have a good son called Otto. He's great. Otto's going to become king. And so he writes in his will, and everybody says, okay, Otto becomes king. But Otto's younger brother, Henry, doesn't like that. Right. And Henry rises in rebellion. Interesting. Okay. And Henry's Hen- excuse. Henry excused, sounds a lot like Renly, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Yes, it does. And I don't know if there is any real knowledge on George uh, uh, George Martin's thought. He's not really strong in the Holy Roman Empire since. But Henry Jr.'s uh, main claim to fame, he was born under the purple. He was born when his father, Henry, was king and he gets his father's Henry name. Hmm. So he must obviously be the next in line. And he and Otto have to go at it for years until Henry finally gives up. And Otto gives him Bavaria. Henry's happy and fighting in Bavaria until he dies of a semi natural death. Hmm. So things back then were all up in the air. And that's sort of what they are here. You know, The Targaryens came in and shook everything up. and have you read the the book he wrote, the Blood, that they're basing the new miniseries on? Fire and Blood,
1: I, I have. But I want to ask you a quick question about this king who let, who decided to give his kingdom over to his bitter rival. Mm-hmm. Why? Conrad, what was the political game? Well, in that? again, we
2: can't know everybody's minds perfectly, of course, because our sources are so limited. But uh, historians have often said he realized that if it went to his own son. That rival is probably going to rise up again and cause trouble. So why mm. not give him the have him the problem? Say, and maybe he knew his own son was incompetent. Oh, right? sometimes fathers know their sons are incompetent. So he cho- You think
1: he might have? Cho- he this might have been a choice between: do I give my son the kingdom or
2: do I give my son peace? Or do you give the realm peace? Uh huh. Sure. Right? Because that's, you know, like the, the TV version, right? You know, this chapter is almost non existent. You know, we spent five minutes on that debate. But there's a great scene Or maybe it was this chapter before. No, it must be the chapter before. It's episode before, episode nine. Yeah. You know, uh, Varys, w- when he's talking to Ned in the dungeon, he's talking about the realm, mm-hmm. for the peace of the realm. Uh, if you bring in your enemies close and make them responsible for it, that might be a good idea. And I think that's what most historians say that, that my comrade didn't, he knew Henry would rebel again. Henry had the power, the authority, the respect. Why let his son do this in a very fragile situation where their family haven't held it for very long, right? The Carolingians mm. used to have it. Now they're this new family and, and nobody really trusts them. So, so then dynasties take time to build up that legacy of fixedness right it just doesn't happen that's what you're saying about the baratheons they didn't have any fixedness you know yeah the baratheon took charge because he was able to kick the targaryen's asses and they lost and they died out except for these few fringe refugees will amount to nothing except they get dragons or she gets dragons right but but um because her brother is worthless too what an idiot yeah um so and it's it's that's one of the things i like about the Game of Thrones is it shows people changing their minds and their attitudes can based on their own self-interests
1: mm-hmm.
2: and their own experiences. And that's why I said Rob, they, they vote for Rob to be king and go back to this tradition because it's their old law, their old memories. They've always been struggling to be independent. Mm-hmm. And Rob has shown himself a leader. And they and decide. they don't know Renly. They know yeah. Stannis is a They're jerk. deciding
1: to do this. Yes because it's like they can smell weakness. Yes. It's like, "Oh, there's like now we have we have the boy king on the throne. We we know that he does not have a strong claim, you know. There's there's Stannis who has a stronger claim to the throne." there's renly who's now claiming to be king
2: well status's stronger claim is only again if you believe the bastardy and and of course that's also a delicate issue i think we talked about it last time you know that, that the proof of the bastardy is very vague it's, yeah yeah nobody a lot of people aren't buying into that but joffrey's cruelty is being proven more well and in, in
1: this chapter we don't even see i don't think rob either rob doesn't know because he's still considering, you know, Tommen to be king if if yeah. uh, Joffrey dies. Either Rob doesn't know about this, or right. he doesn't believe it. I'm not sure which it is. Well, I, I don't.
2: I don't think Ned got the the information out, did he?
1: He did. I mean, he got a letter to Stannis, but I don't think. Oh, Stannis to Stannis, right? And that's why Stannis, sent, is yeah. convinced. Yeah. So
2: Stannis is convinced. Okay, right. Yeah.
1: So I don't think Stannis has sent the letter out right. yet. Right. So. Interesting. I always kind of in my mind, I was, I always got that a little confused. Um, like, when does Rob actually find out? But of course, that's not till the next book. Yeah. Um, I, the other thing I wanted to note about this, which I thought was a, a nice little liter, literary bookend, Cat walks into the God's Wood and sees Rob, who's now the Lord of Winterfell, and he's praying under the God in the God's Wood. Right? He's praying mm-hmm. praying under the heart tree. And this, of course, is the second to last chapter of this book. Mm-hmm. The second chapter of this book—you know—if we don't count the prologue—the second chapter is a cat chapter, and she begins it by walking into the God's Wood and seeing Ned praying under the heart under the heart tree. Mm-hmm. And you know, she has to deliver the message to Ned that that John Arryn's dead. And here we have Rob, you know, dealing with the aftermath of, of Ned's death in this, in, you know, in the God's Wood. And I just thought that that, you know, it's a very clear mirror um,
2: of these of these two situations. And note how they change it in the TV version. She goes to the God Woods to find Rob. And what is he doing? He's hacking at a tree with his sword, ruining his sword. He's angry. He's furious. He yeah. has no control. Yeah, Yeah. And and in the book, too, you know, I thought it was very interesting how Martin makes Caitlin a voice for peace as a mother, as a woman uh-huh. not wanting more death and bloodshed. Right. Or the TV version says we're going to get our daughters back and then we'll kill them all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and she's yeah. totally silent during the, the King of the North meeting. So. You know, you know they clearly changed the characters. I, I think you're right. That's a beautiful moment because and you believe in things, you know, belief, as I said, the belief the, the religion plays an important part in this book. Mm-hmm. And you've got the old religion of the old gods, which the the North still pushes. And then you've got the, the seven gods of, of the South mm-hmm. and, you know, other gods. Yeah, other and even countries. Great
1: John calls that out. He's like, even their gods are wrong, right? So, yes, I do think that there's something about the show that tried to remove certain elements of magic and certain elements of religion.
2: Quite often, yes, and
1: and often sort of saved those. uh, You know, it's in other words, it's not something that sort of permeates the world of the show. But it it is brought in every now and again be, if it will move the plot right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're like, eh. Let's make this more of a political
2: thriller and yeah, it's it's more Machiavellian, you know, using mm-hmm. pure power politics and self interest to make decisions right, rather right, than right. issues of faith and belief, which is is stronger in the books. Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Anyway, I thought that that was a nice little bookend there, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and of course, you know, you've got cat who you know when we int- when she's introduced she's she does not feel fully at home in the north right you know, she's been there for 17 years or 14 years or whatever it is um but she's never never quite felt at home in the godswood this is always this is going to be ned's world in a way that it will never be her world Mm-hmm. And now, finally, it took uh, the entire book to, for her to get there. But she's finally returned to the home of her birth, and so she ought to feel more at home. You know, she she should feel more like a fish in the in the in the river, you know, per- perfectly at home. And yet, all of the all of this stuff is happening in her life. And just to call it out, it's her relationship with all of the men that should be most important to her that are, are troubled. You know, mm-hmm. Her father's dying. Her son, who is too young to be king, is being named king. And you know he does. She doesn't even know if he's kissed a girl yet. Yes, Well, state. he's killed men on the battlefield. Surely he must kissed a. He must have kissed a girl, but she doesn't know. That's how young he is. And then mm-hmm. of course her husband's dead. And so so she's really a woman without a home at this point, because she's she's no longer sort of a creature of Riverrun and all of her identity is wrapped up in these men. And that's why
2: I think she's Martin gives her this this role of of the mother who um, is asking for peace. And that's where you get a very sex exchange where, you know, Mm. Great John says, you are a woman, my lady. Women do not understand these things. <laughs> you are the gentle sex, says Lord Karstark. A man has a need for vengeance. And she has this beautiful response. You know, give me Cersei Lannister, Lord Karstark. Uh-huh. We'll see how gentle a woman can be. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I understand futility. And, and she's being prophetic here. So, so the novel has prophetic. This war is futile. Mm-hmm. It is not going to wind up the way any of them want, uh, except when we get the Deus Ex Machina of the the dragon.
1: So i I was wondering, you know, this she has this interesting exchange with her dying father in this Yeah. Character. And you kind of get the sense that you know he's not on the milk of the poppy, but I
2: wonder how (laughs) much. Oh, he is. He He talks about him being on. Yeah, I mean they they say
1: that he's kind of sobered up for this meeting, but Mm -hmm. you wonder like, geez, like how much how much has this dulled this guy's wits? You know, he's he's still got these old concerns and these old grievances he's nursing. You know, he's you know he's wondering why 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 lice is not there and then he's like really upset that his younger brother who's probably in his 50s never married you know he's never going to let it go no. um anyway i just thought that it was just such a real moment of of a real you know older man with power when everything else is gone what he's got left are these old grievances that he's just going to hold on to
2: and and his grievances are, are also about family so yeah. I said this important of dynasty and marriage and continuance. That's what royal or aristocratic noble families do is, you know, they keep track of these genealogies. They arrange these marriages carefully mm-hmm. um, and they, they want the, the children." Now I, I was intrigued, you know, why doesn't the black fish marry? Um,
0: yeah. You know, I was a wondering that too. He's isn't... a character
2: I would have loved to have seen more in yeah. the books. Yeah, you yeah. know, it, 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 George R. R. Martin sort of brings him in briefly and leaves him again. And I, um, he seemed like such a great, interesting character.
1: Yeah, I was wondering—is he sort of like a an older confirmed bachelor? Yeah, you a know, confirmed that kind of thing. Bachelor. Right. So I, I was wondering that too. Or what? Maybe he's a playboy. Maybe he's like I'm not going to be tied to any one woman. I mean, that, that's also possible too, right? Although he mostly just talks about warfare. <laughs> I
2: think he's mostly fond of war. Or um, could it be he's a that great warrior?
1: Yeah, could it be that uh, he does have? a woman, but he refuses to marry her because she's the wrong sort of person to mm-hmm. marry, you know. And and in this chapter too, he's too old at this point. You know, he says I'm just too old. <laughs> I do like that um, you know, Hoster Tully is basically like it was my right to choose his bride for him. Yes. Um and I almost wonder like, is this just a thing between brothers, like no, you, you, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna give you the satisfaction of choosing my bride.
2: You know, is it something as petty as that? Well, choosing brides and spouses is is the key to many of the dynamics in these stories. Mm-hmm. You know that that Cersei lines up with Robert Baratheon. Oh my God, what a terrible marriage! And the the whole foundational fight. <laughs> Before that, with Rhaegar leading to Robert's rebellion and or, of course, Rob's downfall is, of course, also related to marriage. You know, he's already made the promise to marry the Walder Frey girls. And we know that's not going to happen. And that leads to the Red Wedding. Um, Mm -hmm. So family and marriages Mm -hmm. is the peaceful aspect of what they focus on. But when things don't wind up peaceful, they resort to violence again. And, and so it's all intertwined, you know, and that's, again, this mm, duality mm. of, you know, power and love, because ideally dynasties would be based on love, but they're often not. It, it really
1: is hard to find a marriage that that was conceived in love. A lot of bad marriages. That didn't so. end very badly in these books. You know, you th- you think of. You think of, like, you know, how much Ned and Kat love each other. And, um, you know, there's a there's a certain distance between them. But the, you do get the sense Mm-mm. that they, they have right. affection for right. each other. But this was not the original arranged marriage. You mm-hmm. know, Ned kind of s- stepped in at the last minute. It's not like they f- fell in love and before they got married. And then, of course, you mentioned Rob. And we could mention Tyrion's first wife. You know, any time anyone marries for love in these books, it usually ends really badly. Yeah. It's the price of love, I guess. (laughs) Now here's my question to you, Brian. So, Mm -hmm. right. So that's, that's the world that Martin has created in these books. In these books, we rarely meet a commoner and kind of see what the life of the commoners like. Mm -hmm. Um, if we do meet a commoner, it's usually because they're connected to the aristocracy in some way. So all right, so it's 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 problematic for these lords and ladies to marry for love. Would it have been the same for the common folk? Uh, I know that I know that arranged marriages would have been sort of the norm, but it would be less problematic if the farmer's daughter married the blacksmith's daughter just because they happened to get romantic one night. So I guess, I, is this a question that, is this a problem for commoners in the same way it was for lords and ladies? Yeah,
2: it, it was. Now, again, particularly looking at the different groups in society, you know, at the bottom are the serfs. And the right of a serf to marry, depending on the local law and custom, was controlled by his lord. Mm, mm-hmm. Lords had vast interests in, in whom serfs would marry, and particularly that, that a serf might marry out of the manor and go to someone else's manor and that loses the lord his labor. So, lords would control uh, serfs' yeah. marriage. Now, the right of the first night is an imaginary thing, it never really happened. But, um,
1: lords just to fill in the blanks here, this was sort of a, a brave heart, um. Oh, and I hated that so
2: much because you didn't. need Yeah, the, the need idea it.
1: here is that the Lord, the Lord can have sex with any woman on on her wedding night. Yeah. Uh, so this, so the guy can basically have sex with any woman in the kingdom when she's right. you know
2: marrying. And what got me like mad that. about Braveheart is you didn't need the right of the first night, which is bogus. Just talk about rape. I mean, he he basically raped. Braveheart's wife. And and vengeance for rape is a good enough motive. You don't need that whole rigmarole about night of the right of the first night, which was bogus. That's why mm. I got anged the film. Mm. And then it was just far too long. But uh <laughs> the same with merchant families. Marriages, because yeah. families owned their businesses. The business was their family, and the family was their business. They're also careful about who their children are marrying because you don't want them to lose business opportunities or business alliances or supply chains and things like that. So people obsessed about marriages. And another thing I keep mentioning is, as you referred to, until modern times, most marriages were arranged by the parents and the family. People did mm-hmm. not choose. Now, a, a good family is going to take into account a love match that perhaps is developed. But also, if it, it's not in their interests, they'll stop it as best they can. Uh, but that's also why again, that I mentioned that word rape. The word rape is also used quite often in the Middle Ages and in, in chivalric stories, not to refer to a man forcing himself on a woman uh, for sex, but for a, a knight to kidnap a lady, carry her off and wed her against their family desires. Mm. And that's what many stories are about is knights kidnapping women. So they would women.
1: use the word rape of of something along the lines of what... Uh, Rhaegar did with Liana.
2: Yes, ex- yeah,
1: exactly. Interesting.
2: And, and and even and of course that was, as we learn later, a love match, right? I mean, right. Not it, right. They were in love with each other.
1: So when Robert accuses Rhaegar
2: of rape, that yes. could be what he's talking about. Or he's using it in the harsher term because he refused to recognize that, right? Because he didn't An- like that relationship, um, and neither did any of the families. So it gets turned into. And it this wasn't tale.
1: Liana's right to choose her own lover exactly right right so i think that i that's i didn't know that and and it does make more sense of the narrative that's
2: told about them Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. it's a classic chivalric tale of
1: uh interesting i think that most most readers of this book are thinking of rape in terms of you know the the physicality of the act right right so that's to me that's fascinating it's it's really a question of who who has the right to choose whose marriage match. And Hoster seems to be very upset that mm-hmm. the Blackfish never went for the red wine girl. Mm-hmm. Um and he's sort of holding on to this grievance, you know, <laughs> long after she's married someone else and she has three kids by someone else. Yeah. Right? Uh but that's, you know, that that seems to be the the thing that he's holding on to after all these years.
2: Yeah, although you also recognize, too, that he's senile at this point. So he's. And that's what senile people do. Their, their, their senility often focuses on some minor issue that they blow out of proportion in the present when it is long past. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that's, you know, to me, too, it's this description that is most, uh, you know, he's described as being a, a sort of husky man in his youth and then a portly man. And now he's just a saggy shell of himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he, well, what uh, are
1: his assets? I mean, if you think about his assets as the Lord of River Run, right? So he has. You know he's got this land, mm-hmm. and that's strategic. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, so that's never going to, <laughs> it's never going to increase unless you're, you know, going to take someone else's land. Right. But one way that you can gain more power in this world is you could use the the people around you as assets. And I'm guessing that the Blackfish is a is a pretty. Pretty powerful asset. Oh, absolutely. That, that, that's why. Right? So he could easily make a really strong alliance with the Red Wines mm-hmm. if his brother will go along with this marriage. Yeah. Uh, so so what, what the Blackfish has done by sort of exiling himself to the Erie is he's stolen away one of Hostetoli's
2: most valuable assets. Right and that's, that's how you play families you, you you marry your daughters and and the, the the worthless ones you you push into the church <laughs> until situation changes and they become valuable again uh, so it's almost oh did we see people pulling their their daughters out
1: of the nun and their ones?
2: sons the most famous example cesare borgia the, the idol or the, the, the interesting. interesting uh guy who machiavelli admires you know the, the military genius who almost unites italy cesare was originally considered the less valuable son and was pushed into the clergy he was a cardinal of the church and um when his pope or his pope father papa alexander says well i I need you to uh be my military commander and all this uh, so stop the church stuff and i'll make you the the duke of valentino and uh, go to war cesare Mm -hmm. Uh, he's just just the most famous example of people pulled out of the church when they needed to be another example famous example is alfred the great Alfred the Great had all sorts of brothers who were above him. Well, they got knocked off by the Vikings. And so it came down to little Alfred. And of course, he turned out to be both a military genius and and a cultural stalwart and uh, helped to create England. Um, So, yeah, those things happen too. Your family is your. Your stock, your your, your mm-hmm. valuables, your...
1: Yeah, it's the pieces on the chessboard, board, right? And, and
2: you only have the land. You only have to cover the chessboard with your pieces, right? You, you yeah, own the chessboard right. with what your pieces do. Your family protects your land, protects your valuables. And
1: it's not a fair fight. It's not like the other guy has the same pieces on the chessboard. So you
2: have to make the most of the pieces that you right. have. They don't come to, you know, chess starts to equal size... Both have the same odds, but you're born into a world where the odds are not necessarily with you. It could be against you, and the, you know the great heroes are the ones who uh, work against the odds to overcome their difficulties. And uh, mm. in a sense, mm-hmm. that's uh, what some of these characters in Game of Thrones are trying to do: over, overcome their odds, like like Jon Snow, you know, a bastard, although he's technically more important than he realizes uh rises to this position of power or, or brandon you know starts out healthy but winds up broken and uh, still manages to see that but of course that's also magic involved which you know is a whole game changer in, in a fantasy book that is different from reality like, again that's the main reason renly loses is magic is used against him i think it would have stood a good chance without the magic i
1: yeah and I almost did wonder at this point in the book, and maybe you can give your opinion on this too. But there was this moment toward the end of the chapter where I was thinking, "That's the right play. Go throw in your lot with Renly. Mm. There, you have five of the seven kingdoms, right? You know, going against the 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 Lannisters. All you have to do, kind of dispense with this." Crappy line of succession narrative, which you're going to dispense with anyway. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's the right play, Rob. You know, go meet up with Renly, unite your forces, and that is the you know that's the mo- that i think that that's mm. the most u- judicious I, play you could make at this point I,
2: I think it's a good strategic play except again for that problem of magic because stannis is so determined to win yeah. right he resorts <laughs> okay. to dark magic right, right, right and right. that changes the whole game <laughs> and, and that's again that's again the, the, what history does and what the book does is surprises you with twists and turns uh-huh. of people making surprise decisions and surprise deaths or surprise mistakes uh-huh. you know they're, they're, the. the, the luck is so all right so from Rob's
1: perspective put yourself in Rob's shoes you don't know Mm -hmm. about the magic any more than Renly does right um what's the right play here
2: because I'm I'm suggesting go team up with Renly I think the right play would be if I were Rob is to declare myself king of the north and dare anyone to come get me oh and just retreat to the north right right Rob's problem is he wants vengeance Mm -hmm. and decides to attack the south um, and of course the whole marriage issues and finding allies, but if he'd stayed in the north, he never would have had the red wedding mm-hmm. um and again it's a lot again one of the problems with the Game of Thrones books, of course, is how vast Westeros is you know to sustain an army going all the way to the north in real life is a huge logistical problem mm-hmm.
1: uh,
2: but you also have, but they also don't know get another magic issue we have the the you know, beyond the wall, the problem is developing there. So again, he, but nobody knows, them, nobody right? knows nobody's that nobody's taking that seriously. And
1: no one knows that there's gonna be dragons in the next chapter, right? So. Right.
2: So that, that changed, but but if from if a non-magical pure political perspective, I would if I were Rob, yeah, these guys are behind me. Mm-hmm. Uh we'd kick anybody's asses who comes up north let's just yeah, do that hold the twins. And, and, and and shift a few forces sure. here or there to support our allies. Yeah. And again, maybe stay out of the, because Renly and Stannis, they're going to go at it tongue and nails. So we just stay out of that too. Uh-huh. Let them fight it out and see who's left standing. Huh. That would be my play.
1: And then of course you've got the, you know, you, you see if they'll trade Jamie Lannister for Sansa yes. Stark. And um, yeah, and that, well, yeah, th- th- then everyone too, <laughs> gets messed up, too. Uh-huh. Just, nothing goes right. Uh, right. Right. Well, all right. I'm just going to call it a few introductions here. So, um, mm-hmm. Edmure Tully, we meet for the first time. We also meet a few other uh, lords, including Tytos Blackwood. Uh, we meet Hoster Tully. And I don't think that we ever see him again. So we're going to call him also a de- departure from the narrative. We don't learn about his death though later though um we already noted a few show versus book differences, right you know instead of Rob praying under the heart tree, you've got him hacking up a tree and ruining his sword you know that all all of that business and you you have a much shorter council of lords that declares Rob King in the north um so those those are a few differences. We I don't just this cat I don't think she ever has that final conversations with her father in the show. I think she learns of his father's death before she can have that final meeting. Mm. Um, I'll have to go double check that to make sure but I think I think that that's how it plays out. Um, anything else that you noticed about this chapter that you thought was interesting?
2: I like the brief mention of mage Mormont, so again, a female lord with her spiked mace. Yes, yeah, female warrior. Um. And, and um, as often churchmen who went into battle, and as prince bishops, they often used maces and clubs rather than swords because technically they're not supposed to shed blood the most famous example of this is in the bayou tapestry oh my
1: goodness i had no idea where odo
2: right odo the brother of william of normandy he's a he's a cleric he's a bishop and he's riding into battle wielding a club as they're invading england so he's
1: okay he's a man of the cloth right odo yeah odo Mm -hmm. and he there's some rule about men of the cloth not they shouldn't shed blood
2: shed blood so you don't have a sword with cuts you just have a a, a bludgeon mace a bludgeon yeah. like a mace a club looks like a little baseball bat in the biotapestry. Uh, that of course will just cause bruising and bleeding is all internal uh-huh. so they're not technically shedding blood now, why? that was one excuse all they right used.
1: no no this is good uh, this is fascinating okay so, okay so if is there like is this sort of like a an off the books rule, or if it's just common sense, or is there actually a sort of oh, there, a, a there, rule polity
2: that's a... there's there a rule. Okay. And and that's that's one of the problem with having these prince bishops, is you know, they're politicians and a politician in the middle ages has to go to war. Interesting. So there was a huge effort constantly to try to get rid of them, but they were strong and powerful enough, especially in the Holy Roman Empire, to continue. Throughout the Middle Ages. And again, like um You know, this is actually funny to
1: me because i yeah. I'm thinking of like Disney's Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. Doesn't Friar Tuck like he doesn't ha- actually have a a blade, but he uses like other things to bonk people on yeah. the head. Mm-hmm. Right, right.
2: <laughs> and see even in uh um Errol Flynn's Robin Hood. Same with Friar Tuck in that too. Interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So and, yeah. So uh, clubs and maces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so here they're showing her as a woman also with a a, a sword, which is perhaps too phallic mm. in its metaphysical sense for her to use, and says she's using you know spiked mace. Interesting. So I thought that was a cute little detail. Very interesting. And, and, and yeah. of course she she's. She dies and then is replaced by her charming daughter, who's you know, a great character in the TV show.
1: Right. Okay. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Trip, I was hoping that we could talk a little House of the Dragon, but also a little bit of the new Middle Earth spinoff. Oh, yeah. I feel Rings like I should know power. the name of this project. Rings, Rings. of yeah. Power. <laughs> Thank you. That's why I had you on cuz you knew the title of the show. No, now
3: you say it and we'll pretend you just thought of it. <laughs> hey Anthony, what's that new show called
1: like, you know, Amazon's doing it? Mm-hmm. I think it's called Things of Power. Things? <laughs> yeah.
3: It's it's a precious thing. It's precious.
1: <laughs> I want to talk about this because and let me just throw an idea at you and see how you respond to this. Okay, tell me. I think inevitably people will want to compare these two shows as if they have sort of a genre similarity. Mm -hmm. I don't think that these should be considered the same genre at all. I feel like Tolkien was writing mythology in service to children's literature or children's literature in service to mythology, more likely. I don't think, I think mythology is an afterthought in Martin's world. And Martin's writing adult political fiction that happens to have fantasy elements. The mythology is sort of like way down his list of concerns. So I, even though they kind of loosely fall under fantasy lit, I I really think that we need to draw a distinction between these two things.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think they're different. Um, and I, the other day I was talking with uh, a literature professor that's part of like debating whether or not Tolkien defines fantasy for modernity and all this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. I just realized that you used a lot of words that I'm guessing English professors now are like triggered. They're like, oh no, we're having this debate. Um, and, and, and I, and so <laughs> my apologies
1: you know, to all of the English professors out
3: there. Yeah, I know because you bring them to the yard, the podcast yard. And, and, but I do think you're, you're right. Like that there's, there's really different questions driving, um, both series. Um, and at least for me, like I've been a long time, uh, fan of Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, uh, that whole mytho-poetic universe of mm-hmm. excitement. Mm-hmm. And when I started Game of Thrones and thought, oh, this is kind of like Lord of the Rings, I just was disappointed. It didn't. <laughs> it just didn't have that in it. And then sure. I-, I think you're right. Like when you realize w- that, it, yeah, there are swords and dragons yeah, yeah. and some magic things and all that kind of stuff, then, it, yeah, they're similar in the sense of the action sequences. But... um but the contrasts, I think, are really, really important. Um, and and switching, switching your brain, if you come into it like I did as a Tolkien fan, that this is not like a, a telling of a fantasy world that has this deep mythological structure that helps you look at uh, uh, the kind of uh, flattened metaphysics of modernity, resisting mechanism, and all this kind of thing. That's mm-hmm. not what Game of Thrones is doing. Uh, so, no. th- do knowing what knowing what the goal of a story really impacts being able to enjoy it and appreciate it and then attend to the right kind of things.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like Rings of Power is one of these things where, well, I'll just come clean, all right? I'm going to totally, this is going to be my confessional. So you have a a religion background. You're going to be my priest for the next five minutes.
3: (laughs) Says the guy that teaches future ministers professionally. (laughs) All right, go ahead.
1: Yes, exactly.
3: (laughs) And named your kids after characters in the Cimmerillion.
1: Mm -hmm. I feel like I have a lot of worry about Rings of Power. In a way that I don't really have about House of the Dragon, and the reason is, is that I feel like I have a lot more invested in Tolkien. Yeah, I feel like I've got a longer history with Tolkien. I feel like Tolkien's kind of followed me from, you know, the time I was nine years old until until now. I mean, at different stages of my life, I've I've ter- I've turned to this mythology for different reasons. I feel like if this is done poorly, Rings of Power, I will I'll just turn it off. I'll turn it off episode yeah. one and I'll walk away and I'll think, well, that didn't happen. Like I have still never seen the Hobbit trilogy. <laughs> um because I watched the first five minutes of the of the show and I thought, Nope, not for me. I, I no. don't I don't need I don't need my favorite book of all time butchered on screen i will walk away
3: i feel like game of thrones fans if that's their favorite book it probably felt similar during the last
1: season of the tv show i'm sure yeah and i think that that's probably i'm probably being as ungenerous as some of the the worst game of thrones fans
3: but but see you you have this double double situation here one kind of like falling in love with uh, like literature that brings you into a whole new world but then it gives you back mm-hmm. your world in a different way like one where like at the very heart of it like uh, uh, pity pity can become the linchpin that opens up awakenings of possibility and you know like whatever you are like the mm-hmm. what seizes you about Tolkien and, mm-hmm. and 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 coming of age that that that, uh, that there is a genuine struggle at the heart of the human. Um, to do good when it costs you something Mm -hmm. and that the the most powerful community one can have are good friends like that you don't read game of thrones and go hey look at this is what family's for you know uh (laughs) so i think that there's like the beautiful possibilities of a world of meaning purpose and value despite its ugliness and brokenness tolkien is trying to give us such a rich account of this world you think Mm -hmm. it might be possible in yours and uh in in game of thrones you, you get this kind of like honesty about just how fucked up human beings are and
1: uh the well, it's also about falling in love with these human beings, right? Yeah. It's like I for some reason, I'm in love with the journey of Jamie Lannister, who's is as messed up <laughs> a protagonist as you will meet in literature, right? I think with Game of Thrones, i I kind of come to it for the characters. Like I think that a lot of people think of Martin's work as sort of a plot driven story. I really think it's a character driven story. So every now and again I'll I'll like realize like okay Martin's actually pretty good at this you know <laughs> like this is it's a really beautifully constructed sentence or I'm kind of curious about the world building behind this um with Tolkien I feel like there's something there's a little part of my life little part of my soul that has been partitioned off and kept pure for Tolkien <laughs> <laughs> With Game of Thrones, well, I'm like, yeah, let's see how this relates yeah. to everything else, and oh, who cares if I didn't like this chapter, and I'll move on, and if House of the Dragon's not well, perfect, I'll be like, yeah, but it's pretty good television. I, I, I cool. don't feel nearly as generous about uh, Rings of Power.
3: No what happens if uh, characters you named your children after mm-hmm. are in rings mm-hmm. of power what if like, they You know that totally sets up for cosplay moments right <laughs> Yeah but like you're going to win father yeah, of the year But what
1: if these characters are played by like horrible actors I mean I just feel like there's a lot on the line there's a lot on the line
3: There is there is but see I I mean I love Tolkien and I love the books I thought the I think the Lord of the Rings movies are wonderful mm. um I there are things they change to it that you know I I would prefer an extra hour in the first movie to hang out and
0: uh, mm-hmm. and and
3: just have some fun uh, in the forest and then yeah. anyway the it, it go see Tom Bombadil and anyway but I think the I, I'm gonna watch it and celebrate it
1: I want and to too man man I want to be with you I want
3: I want them to spend all the money on it <laughs> so sure. that then. They say Amazon. See, Jeff Bezos, horrible person. Like, you know, I, as a good, committed Christian socialist, I think he should be taxed into oblivion mm-hmm. and uh, not have privatizing space. And uh, he's put all sorts of businesses out. Amazon's horrible. Addicted to them, personally. Uh, I mean, I'm not getting rid of Amazon Prime. But I used to have to keep my Amazon Prime just to admit my depravity Mm. as a person. Now I keep it on behalf of Tolkien. (laughs) On behalf of 20th century's most compelling literature Mm. to give us back a world that has been raked over by scientific reductive materialism, re-enchanting the possibilities of friendship and narratives and journeys. And then I'm Like, okay Bezos, look, let's make a deal. We'll tax all the other billionaires into oblivion. We'll let you keep the money as long as we get good Lord of the Rings TV and eventually <laughs> you do all the Cimmerillion through the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings episode by episode like 60 episodes over like 6 years to be the greatest achievement any one percenter's ever done. That I think. It, 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 see, that's my hope. See, I'm leaning on the positive side. That's what I'm going to do. You're
1: really good at talking. <laughs> You're really good you are. At talking. You're really good at talking. I feel like I was nearly as good as talking. You've had a lot of practice. I think you know. I'm like a. I'm almost at 1500
3: podcast episodes. I don't. I probably can't keep up with Bald Move because they pop them out like five or six
1: a week. Five or six a week. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk about House <laughs> of the Dragon. Are you Are you excited about House of the Dragon? I
3: I am because. Uh, as someone who does lean, lean on the positive side of fan engagement, I feel like House of the Dragon is uh, – it's got a lot of money behind it and dragons. So you got that. <laughs> sure. Two, um, it's based on books that are done. That's a perk. Also, th- the way the book was constructed in that kind of like history mm-hmm. style and multiple um, voices in it means that the the creators get to give an authoritative – uh, account of the story as long as they follow the outline because oh mushrooms tells mm. it this way you get it this way and and all that kind of thing i feel like if you're gonna have a follow-up to game of Thrones knowing how the other one ended it's it's got all the materials you need to make it got but um the flexibility so that can be turned into good mm-hmm. tv so i'm optimistic but see i'm optimistic about uh tolkien on screen as well so and, and I've watched all three Hobbit movies, extended editions, multiple times. But that could be a teenage son. Let me... So.
1: I, I've got a hot take on House of the Dragon. Are you ready for ooh, this?
3: Ooh, a hot take. Oh, I, I, hold on. Let me put on my fire <laughs> retardant suit.
1: Yeah, good. All right, Thank I'm ready. I almost hope that this show does not have the success that the previous show had. And I'll tell you why. My feeling is that because... Game of Thrones became such the international phenomena that sort of drew all kinds of eyeballs, that made it sort of event television, that it became so successful that, like, you know, it was sort of like being advertised on other shows and being parodied, and I would see it at an MLB baseball game, you know, I would see it everywhere. I almost feel like that cultural weight made them think, okay, we've got to pull out all the stops for season eight. We need to make these last four episodes, you know, 90 minutes long and make the, these giant battles. You know, we want to bring spectacle to the screen because we want to pay this off to all these folks that are showing up for event television. I feel like they were a victim of their own success. And I feel like if House of the Dragon is just sort of like a moderate success, then it could be that the showrunners decide, let's just finish this story in the way that we began it and not Mm -hmm. try to turn it into something that we weren't trying to make in the first place. That's my hot take. Oh, so you want
3: you want it successful enough that they
1: they keep yes. making stuff,
3: but not so successful that they make it for a universal or audience. Or
1: they or they they, want... they change they you know they they change the pacing, they change the way that they tell the story, they change the you know. I just feel like season eight was actually a pretty amazing television. You know the numbers mm-hmm. never went down, but I feel like the showrunners felt like they needed to sort of one-up themselves. Yeah. You know, they need to, like, push all their chips in at the end, and it didn't really work. in, In terms of storytelling, it didn't work for sort of the hardcore fans. I want House of the Dragon to draw interest from the nerds, like me and you, and I want them to continue to appeal to the nerds, like me and you, throughout the entire series. I don't want there to be watch parties. In other words,
3: Oh, uh, well, I'm gonna guess at least week one there'll be watch sure. parties.
1: Okay, but, but maybe uh, there'll be uh, like then everyone's gonna nerdy... realize
3: that Rings of Power is so much better, <laughs> so they're just going. To... <laughs> they're gonna be like, oh, "Wow, we don't need any more watch parties." Anthony told us he doesn't want this to be too po- popular. I'm gonna watch. Uh, but he, he's, I'm gonna he's...
1: watch House of the Dragon with both eyes open. I'll probably watch each episode a few times. I'm gonna watch Rings of Power with one eye closed. Like looking through the slits in my fingers, and you know, a little bit nervous. That's how I'm gonna approach these two shows.
3: Kind of like when when it's uh, the lectionary text is one of your favorite like gospel passages and then you turn on the tv and it's stuck on some channel there's like a preacher on it and you're like oh they're about to butcher this this is one of the best the best jesus high quality well, that's even parables. worse i i can
1: i cannot watch anything bible related on on any screen i just i i'm out i'm out from the beginning
3: the more you like it, the less uh, less support. If you are going, I, to well, the I can't turn off like, my brain. No. Like
1: I just did this Mary Magdalene project. You know, we're sort of like yeah. surveying Mary Magdalene and all these different films, and, I, and I, every single one is like, man, this is horrible. This is this is a nightmare. This is. I mean, even even the good stuff. You know, even even the interesting like Martin Scorsese stuff is like, mm-hmm. why is Harvey Keitel wearing a little orphan Annie wig? This is. This is (laughs) odd. This is very odd.